Hey everybody, Rob North here from the Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades podcast. Just saying that if you like what we do and you'd like to support us financially and get access to exclusive content, you can go to patreon.com slash trrpod. As always, hold fast and on with the show. Anybody bought their uh, Gwyneth Paltrow vagina scented candle yet? Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I spent all my money on vagina eggs. I hear she's actually going into the rug and carpet business as well. Already, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> well, my only question is does, does it come in blonde or does it come in black and you have to bleach it? Jesus fuck. <laughs> you know what they say do the curtains match the candles? <laughs> <laughs> it's 2020. It's just bare floor. It's just bare floor. It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, makes, me, makes me long for a simpler time. Back to Bob Crane. <laughs> <laughs> how does like? How are we going to make it to the end of this decade without forming a band called Bob Crane Sex Call? Bob Crane Sex Call. I don't know. I do rhythm guitar and vocals. Well, I might. Mine might just be my my solo project will be the Chris Miller Vagina Candle Experience. That'll be my, <laughs> my prog album. Just you. Just, speaking you of speaking of prog moment. rock that I hate, uh, Neil Peart died. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Everybody seemed to like. I Rush. Uh, look, I, I mean, I was sad because he's a very talented drummer, but I'm not that big of a Rush fan. I Same. hate Rush so much, and it's just been nothing but Rush on the radio. And I thought about wrecking my car. <laughs> I just can't. Well, here's here's my thing about Rush, and I I, I don't really shit on people who like Rush because I I understand I why they're people fucking like nerds. It. Joe Jeffinay, yeah, our patron. Great. <laughs> it's great musicianship. I'll admit that. But my problem with Rush is that they took rock and roll in the '70s, and which was a very very horny time for music. And when you got bands like Led Zeppelin singing about like sex and 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 like magic Hobbits. with Hobbits. K and, Hobbits. And, and, and fantasy, and they took all of the sex and the horniness out of rock in the seventies and injected it with Ayn Rand and sci-fi. Well, they are from Toronto. <laughs> that is true. <sighs> My big problem. oh, that's have another you, wait, huge strike on, that nobody on. talks about. I have been about. to Toronto. That is a very horny city. Really? Oh yeah. Can't get in. I got priors. That's that's yeah. You got. <laughs> I can't shit. cross the border. <laughs> No, Toronto's a very horny city because you get that you got winter lasting that long. You got you got to find something to do. Well, yeah, that's true. That's why that's why they're all drinking that Tim Hortons too much. They're all jittery. <laughs> now, my big problem with Would Rush, you like to touch my Tim bits? Is a very popular uh, pickup line. My big problem with Rush is Presto came out when I was a sophomore in high school, mm. and I'm a metal guy. I'm a rock and roll guy. I've loved rock and roll since the practically since the day I was born. And then all of a sudden, the nerds got a hold of Rush Presto, and all of a sudden, they've got long hair and they're experts on freaking rock and roll. I'm like, you haven't done a drug in your life. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you come at me, pal. I just I just know that nobody was ever conceived while their parents were listening to Bitor and the Snow Dog. Uh, <laughs> I was talking about it and I, I like like thirty seconds of one rush song out of their entire catalog. Mm. Maybe thirty seconds. I could probably trim it down. Like I hate Rush so much. What thirty seconds? Uh, I like the one fill in the trees. Oh, okay. So yeah. can, can we can we move on from Weird Uncle Corner to what we were actually going to talk about today? A Weird Uncle? <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. Um, we're going to call... This is... Uh, welcome to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades episode... I don't know. It's 30-something. We're going to call this one episode 69. Nice. nice. Thank you, gentlemen. My name's Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. I am Michael Ernett. I am Kyle Graper. And today, we are talking about a gentleman by the name of Giacomo Casanova. <laughs> It's just in time for Valentine's Day. Yeah. Well, uh, first off, apologies for being a week late getting this out. Last we were going to record last week, and we all had the plague. We were like, like we were straight up. Like, like, I was fine. Well, you were fine, but the, the three of us were all sick. Well, it was your birthday. birthday. Yeah. Well, yeah. Happy happy birthday, Kyle. Birthday, Kyle. My birthday's a week from birthday. today. We got to think of something weird to do. Yeah. Happy thirty third birthday. Your, your your birthday's in a week. Yeah. Shane so back in the basement. Today. I'm actually going to be in town for it this time. Which oh is yeah. Nice. Well, I work Saturday, so we'll have to do like a Sunday thing. Been, I've been drunk on a Sunday night before. Uh-huh. We'll, um, we'll figure it out. Hell yeah. Um, so, we, after spending three episodes talking about Heaven's Gate, and by the way, thank you everybody who's listened and has given us a lot of great feedback about that series. We really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, people have been overwhelmingly positive about something that's super fucked up. Well, it, well we figured too, after, <laughs> after a three-part series, and it's our longest series yet in terms of content, almost five hours, where... We were talking about people who were so averse to sex that they were willing to cast- surgically castrate themselves. Gleefully. We decided that for this episode, we were going to go in a different direction and talk about somebody who, quite frankly, when it came to sex, really needed to pump the brakes at certain points. This is a man. To preface just how often this guy was out there doing it. <laughs> Uh, on his return to, I believe it was Venice, whenever the local physician that he went to see again, because he had another STD, mm-hmm. thanked him for the uptick in business after he left. Yeah, <laughs> He was treating so many STDs solely from Casanova that he was a wealthier man for it. Yep. And we are talk- he gave him yep. money! <laughs> and we are talking about... He paid off that gondola. (laughs) We are talking about Giacomo Casanova. If you don't know who Giacomo Casanova is, he was an 18th century writer, traveler, libertine, and bon vivant. He was, by vocation and avocation, a lawyer, a clergyman, a military officer, a violinist, a con man, a gourmand, a dancer, a businessman, a diplomat, a spy, a politician, a physician, a mathematician, a social philosopher, a cabalist, a playwright, and an author. But above all, he's known for one thing. Getting him freak on. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's he the thing. does like, the fucking I, I, I think when we look around this table, there are four, we are four guys who I think are, at a baseline, have a pretty good attitude towards sex. Like, we're all... Yeah, I would say it's a pretty healthy approach to yeah, it. We yeah, we have a pretty healthy approach. We are all we all have decent, you know, drives, and none of us are super creepy when it comes to any of this stuff in particular. Except Kyle. Well, this is gonna this yeah. is gonna be. This <laughs> 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 guy's just grunting in his gift well, mask. No, the, the, the problem is when we Rob un- unzip Kyle so he can throw his two cents in. He kind of looked like the kids scene in Forrest Gump. Oh, Kyle. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> Kyle, we are in an audio medium. Spit out the ball game. <laughs> oh no! Wow. Already off the rails. Oh god! No, the problem is at the end of every episode where we chain Kyle back to the radiator in the basement. Normally it's fine, but he started to get rock hard when we do it now, and it's an issue. <laughs> so yeah, so fucking <laughs> four. We got go. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> Shit! All right, I gotta try 
try to keep this movement forward. <laughs> so we have one primary source today, and the source is The Story of My Life by none other than Giacomo Casanova himself. Now, I will admit, I don't think any of us read the entirety of this book. Why? Because it is 12 volumes. It is 2,000 plus pages of this dude telling fuck stories. The, that's a lot of fucking. That's a, he does the fucking. Like that, that bar in, I think it's in Death Valley, says we do the fucking. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, don't sweat so, the petty stuff, pet the yeah, sweaty there stuff. Yeah, uh, there was a citation from one. It was like, uh, I believe it was the ninth volume, but it was the 1700th page. Yes. <laughs> yeah. What and the here's the thing. We all have full-time jobs. We all have things we have to do. This is very much a side hustle for us at this point. I also I, like we don't he, have time to be reading two thousand page a two thousand page autobiography for a one shot episode. No, I mean it, like maybe if I'm it's my own like erotic fan fiction about the movie Real Steel. <laughs> I'll watch that. Listen, it's you, Jack. Or my own erotic fan fiction about <laughs> you and Mike. <laughs> <laughs> you just think about that picture of us under the tree in Bradenton. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's shirtless pics. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> We weren't even hey, that drunk. One million dollars. That third eye comes open. <laughs> one million dollars. <laughs> Mike, don't show me your third eye. I told you this. <laughs> Line up them chakras, Dave. Stop showing me your third eye. Stand back up and turn around. Oh no. So every me. man has his price. God almighty. I knew this is how this episode was gonna go. What do you think Casanova's price would be? Mm. Uh, judging by it's not high no judging by certain things that you can pick up in the autobiography it's, not, it's, it's for high. the very low price of free well oh, he man. gets paid a lot just like the guy just picks up wealthy patrons oh yeah just left and right oh yeah well I'm gonna say because he started the lot at the, the lottery <laughs> probably a couple scratch offs mm-hmm. nice couple couple scratch offs and a mix started the lottery that immediately defrauded <laughs> So can we, let's fuck it. Let's just move forward. Let's just start telling the story because if I don't keep this on track, it's going alright. Yeah, let's let's blow through the story and then we'll just periodically we'll just fish fish for some some sex jokes. Oh, it's gonna be weird. Yeah. So Giacomo Girolamo Casanova was born in the Republic of Venice on April second, seventeen twenty-five. The oldest of six children of Zanetta Farusi, an actress, and her actor and ballet dancer husband Gaetano Casanova. Now, Giacomo's parents met after Gaetano moved to Venice at age 16 in order to seduce a Commedia dell'arte actress 25 years his senior named Giovanna Benozzi, who went by La Fragoletta, which in Italian means the little strawberry, and was unsurprisingly shot down. Now, he managed to find a position at the famed opera house Teatro San Samuele and moved into a small flat above a shoemaker's shop that Zanetta's father owned. He soon caught the eye of young Zanetta, and by 1724, against her parents' wishes, they were married. His father di- her father died soon after from grief, according to Giacomo, but her mother was reconciled to the union only when Gaetano promised that he would never allow Zanetta to become an actress. Now, it's worth noting here that in the early 18th century, being an actor was considered to be a very low profession, and while some performers were renowned internationally for their work on the stage, it was not a great way to make a ton of money, and if you had an actor in your social circle, they were definitely going to be seen as that friend. And many of the wealthy benefactors that funded theater companies wouldn't be caught dead in public around any of the talent, even though they were often good for a little uh, backroom in flagrante delecto. Now, one thing about the Italian theater was that it was the first to actually allow women to play women, unlike everywhere else in Europe at the time, where all the female roles were still being played by men. 
And as such, Gaetano followed through on his promise to his mother-in-law to prevent Zanetta from taking to the stage for about three weeks. <laughs> In 1725, however, little Giacomo came along, and although it was suspected that Michele Grimani, proprietor of the theater where both of his parents worked, may have been the actual father. And this is a claim that is backed up in, uh, in Giacomo's actual biograph uh, autobiography. And Giacomo may not have been the only illegitimate child in Zanetta's brood, because according to his biography, she spent time in London on tour where she was for a short time the mistress of the Prince of Wales, who would go on to become King George II of England. And he claims that his younger brother Francesco was a product of that affair. Now, it may all be hearsay and bullshit, but there are other sources besides Casanova that mention Zanetta as being the mistress of Prince George, and these are contemporary sources, too. So there may actually be a kernel of truth to that story. It's also worth saying that the city-state of Venice in 1725 was a very special place in Europe. First off, it's a republic, led by a head of state called the Doge, who was ostensibly an autocratic leader, but whose power was severely limited and controlled by a series of councils, and the Pregati, a 120-member senate, who did the day-to-day -day running of the state, which was made up of members of the clergy and powerful merchant families. Now, Venice was, like today, a coastal city of islands and canals, and was the preeminent trading and naval power in the Mediterranean, still being a gateway for goods from Asia, Africa, and the Middle East into Europe. It was a very wealthy place, and as such, when there is wealth, there is art, entertainment, and all things indulgent. And by 1725, Venice had a reputation as the pleasure capital of Europe. Although the city's leadership... It's just like Reno. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the biggest little city in Europe. Jesus Loses Christ. slots on the, on, on the canals. Yeah. So, although the city's leadership tended to be stodgy and holier-than-thou by nature, they had enough perspective to know that the city's reputation brought in wealthy travelers eager to experience its gambling dens, theaters, masquerades, and whorehouses. In fact, Venice was a must-visit stop, uh, must stop on what was known as the Grand Tour, a tradition of young upper-class European men who would go on a circuitous journey, accompanied by an appropriate entourage, to all the capitals of art, culture, and high society as a sort of rite of passage. Uh, destinations on this tour would include Paris, Geneva, Vienna, Florence, Rome, Naples, Athens, Constantinople, and of course, Venice. Now, young Giacomo spent most of his early childhood as a sickly boy, being raised by his maternal grandmother, Marzia, as his parents were frequently touring around Southern and Central Europe with their theater troupe. Interesting story, too, regarding Giacomo and his grandmother. Because he was a sickly boy, his grandmother took him to a nose witch. Yeah, she was an actual nose witch. Mm -hmm. Like, he described her as, like, an old woman bundled in rags covered in black cats that lived in a shed on an island <laughs> by herself. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Like, they walk into this shed, like, apparently it was, like, in the rain, so it made it even worse. And there's just, like, some dimly lit candles and this old crone covered in cats boiling stuff. <laughs> 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 and yeah, supposedly she said that he uh, he was dealing with uh, breathing problems because the air in Venice was too dense. We've been doing like we've I been love eighteenth century like, medicine. Like, this, like people still move to to Arizona because of the, the air, but like that's just that's just it. Like, wow, why don't I feel well? Ah, it's too humid. <laughs> I want to go somewhere well, I mean, now it's it's cheaper to pick up your life. And, yeah, it's cheaper to pick up your life and move to Arizona than it is to just go to a doctor. Yeah, <clears throat> get some yeah. <laughs> Uh 
they mucinex. Say the guys who are all still stuffed up from the sickness they've had the previous week. Flown like nothing. Like that little mucinex, like that little booger guy from the commercials, just showed up in my house and kicked me right in the nuts and left. Yeah. Like I don't know what's in me, but it ain't coming out. So when Giacomo was eight, his father Gaetano died of an infected abscess of the inner ear. Ugh. Which, uh, yeah, that's that's that rough. Sounds like a really unpleasant way to go. Yeah. And his mother decided to head off on tour on a more permanent basis and left Giacomo and his five siblings behind. Now, poor Marzia, getting on in years and unable to care full-time for the six young kids she had dumped in her lap so her daughter could go off swanning around with a bunch of theater people, sent Giacomo off on his ninth birthday across the lagoon to Padua on the mainland to live in a boarding house for neglected and orphaned boys. This would leave Giacomo with lifelong abandonment issues and with bitter memories of neglect by his family. Now, conditions in the boarding house were generally appalling, and Casanova wrote about how the house was run by a, quote, Slavic woman, that's all he says, who had quite the mustache and only fed the boys thin soup, dried cod, and apples. But Giacomo was a bright kid with a quick wit and an inquisitive mind, and Abbe Antonio Gozzi, the priest in charge of tutoring the boys, took him into his home and became his primary instructor, teaching him a variety of academic subjects as well as how to play the violin. It was in the Gozzi house where Giacomo had his first intimate interaction with the opposite sex at the hands of Abbe Gozzi's teeny teenage sister, Bettina, whom he took an immediate fancy to at the age of 11. Basically, we can call a spade a spade here and say that Bettina molested him. Mm. And of course, at the age of 11, for most boys, that can, can be a, a time of strong imprinting on their developing sexuality. I won't mention the exact acts that Casanova describes in his writing, but he does mention that Bettina, quote, was the first to show me that the organ of generation was for more than just piecing, end quote. An old-fashioned. <laughs> oh, my God. A good old old-fashioned. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Soon after, Casanova would, re- Casanova would again receive ammunition for his trust issues when a, quote, hairy man started shacking up with Bettina. That's all he says about the guy. And gave both Bettina and Giacomo smallpox. Oh. Which would wow. Leave- which would leave Casanova with lifelong pockmarked scars on his face, although this wasn't an unusual thing to have in the 18th century. Or now. Or now. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Everything old is new again. It's back. Woo! Yeah, I saw a guy in a starter jacket the other day, and everybody has, like, measles. There's nothing new under the sun. I love it. <laughs> now, what Abe Gotze had taught Casanova had apparently taken hold, because at the ripe old age of 12, he entered the University of Padua to study law, even though his true ambition was to study medicine, and Casanova wrote that he was in a course of study, uh, quote, for which I felt an unconquerable aversion. He was pulled out of university for a time by his grandmother because from the age of 13, he was spending too much time partying and gambling that it was driving the entire family into debt. This, we talked about this a long time ago, and I don't remember which episode it was. Which, which one we do about the 40s? Uh, it was, um, uh... La Casa Nostra? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, where I hypothesized that before, like, 1960, all anybody ever did was gamble. That's yeah. it. That's the one common thread in every single goddamn episode we've ever done, except for Heaven's Gate. I think a lot less Everybody people just gambled. It probably would have been a lot more fun, had they? Well, yeah. probably. But they did go gambling. Uh, yeah. Oh. I mean, they lost. Yeah. They <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. Yeah. Well... So back in Venice, at the age of 13, that's the most remarkable thing about this, he was a degenerate gambler by 13 years old. 
He was given a job as a clerical lawyer's assistant and was conferred to minor religious orders by the Patriarch of Venice, meaning that at the age of 14, he was officially made a member of the Catholic clergy. Now, this income meant that he was able to actually shuttle back and forth to Padua to continue his studies, and the additional aid of his first patron, a wealthy 76-year-old Venetian senator named Alvise Malipiero, who not only covered a lot of Giacomo's educational and travel expenses, but started to teach the young man who was now turning into quite the dandy about the finer things in life and how to move about in high society. The pattern of Casanova finding a wealthy patron, which was simply somebody with a shit ton of money who would basically pay to have artists or entertainers on retainer, or simply to have interesting people hanging around to be interesting, would stay in place through most of his adult life in order to fund his lifestyle, and another pattern would start to emerge when Casanova ended up losing this patronage because he was trying to get into the pants of an actress named Teresa Imer, who was Alvise Malapiero's intended object of seduction. A note for you, dear listeners, that Malapiero was 76. Teresa was about 17 or 18. There's going to be a lot of this in this story. Pretty common thread. So Casanova gets thrown out on his ass, but not before he managed to get his Doctor of Law degree at the age of 17. So he next found himself lodging with a farming family on the outskirts of Padua, the Savarnions, and it was there that he managed to complete his first true seduction. Those are the family's two daughters, Nanetta and Marton. There's one fact about the Savarnions, though, that makes this a little dicey. They were relatives of Michele Gramani, who owned Casanova's parents' old theater company and was supposedly Casanova's actual father. And my favorite part is that the sisters were... They told Casanova that if he snuck into their room late at night, they would show him how to get into the sisters' room. That didn't happen. No. (laughs) That's a... What did I say earlier? It was like a penthouse story. Like, you'll never believe what happened to me. I'm looking into four doughy eyes and two sets of pouting lips. Ugh. Uh, yeah, I guess things were which just is a which is one hundred percent how you know that this didn't happen. Yeah. Casanova is so goddamn <laughs> bullshit. There is a zero percent chance that this happened. We're, we're going to get to that when we actually talk about him writing the the one of my favorite my, one of my favorite descriptions of sex ever comes out of Penthouse Forum. Oh, oh no. no! We had. Oh God, no! And I quote: Remember when I said we all have a fairly healthy attitude towards sex? I may have been wrong. <laughs> and I quote. We had to check the shocks on our car. Such was the intensity of our fuckfest. Wow. Wow. That's... It's poetic. It is. (laughs) It is. It's highly alliterative. Is it, it though? Yes. (laughs) I don't... Hey, if you could tape a banana on the wall, you can have a fuck fest. <laughs> Make it worth 120 grand piece of I was bummed when I found out the dude that ate the banana was also in on it. Yeah, that's unfortunate. So Suddenly, Heaven's Gate's castrations make a lot more sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I, I, yeah, I guess things were just different in the 1740s. So after he seduced the Seven Yon sisters, Casanova's grandmother, who raised him, died. He soon decided to move further into his, into his ecclesiastical career and entered a seminary to become a full-on priest, but he had one problem, his gambling. Unfortunately, he ended up with a significant gambling debt to the wrong person and was thrown into debtor's prison. But I really like, would have like, thought it would have been the celibacy thing. I mean, I, that was never really enforced, as we no, hear it, about on the news every 15 minutes. Right. Well, especially in the 18th century, just about every priest of some standing, or and especially bishops and cardinals, they all had mistresses. I, th- I mean, I guess in the when you're in the institutional part of it, it would be 
fairly rigorously enforced. From my understanding, it's that he got in trouble gambling before he could get in trouble for the fucking. Yeah, he was like he was he on just his managed way. to flip it. He was on his way to seminary, and he was so broke he had to sell his clothes. Yeah, and then he like, and then the money that he got from selling his clothes, he lost that too. And so he was just like, it was people like he, he was basically hitchhiking his way to head to seminary yeah. school. And basically, debtors' prisons were a thing, especially in the se- in the 18th century, where if you were in debt to somebody, they could make a claim against you, and they would just throw you in a, a mm-hmm. jail full of people who were everybody in there was in debt and you just stayed there until somebody paid your debt off yeah you had no way of paying your debt you Mm -hmm. were just in debtor's prison or in australia yeah you just you just hang you just would hang out and hopefully not not yeah you gotta hope somebody comes through or it's why debtors like most of the people that were in debtor's prison died now, he managed to get out of debtor's, debtor's prison by accepting a position in the officer uh, offices of uh, Bernardo de Bernardis, uh, Bishop of Catanzaro in southern Italy, that had been arranged for him from afar by his mother, who was now living in Poland. She arranged this whole thing via letter, uh, where her theater troupe had found patronage in the royal court. Some academics have actually theorized that Mama Zanetta may have once been the bishop's mistress at some point in her theatrical travels. Hence why she had such an easy time of accomplishing this. Is that how it works in debtor's prison? Like, say, I know if you go to prison, you get your phone call. Like, back then, you get, like, a pigeon. I mean... <laughs> I ain't saying nothing till I get my pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> or an owl. You're a wizard, Harry. Yeah, I'm still in debtor's jail. The fuck am I supposed to do about it? I feel it? like somebody would have paid for Harry Potter. I guess so. Was he rich? No. Apparently. Yeah, he was oh, rich. Yeah, yeah he, he had a whole he had a whole big vault full of Sorry, cash. The last time I read yeah. Harry Potter, I was twelve. Yeah, that's that sounds about healthy. Yeah, most <laughs> of our friends, the last time they read Harry Potter was yesterday. Yeah, because we're in our thirties, and it's what we have yeah, to do. To that's keep the a only book that exists. <laughs> so Casanova stuck with that position for about three weeks, and then just packed up and left when he found out he didn't like the strict working conditions. And he made his way to Rome, and he found a position as a scribe for Cardinal Troiano Acquaviva. He soon had a Aquaviva. meeting. Aquaviva, yeah. He soon had a meeting with none other than the Pope at the time, Benedict the Fourteenth, where he wasted no time in asking for special dispensations to quote read the forbidden books and from having to eat fish on Fridays and during Lent because he claimed that it inflamed his eyes. If for some reason, seafood gave him pink eye. I don't know. Yeah, that's what did it. You're eating the wrong kind. <laughs> <laughs> You're eating the wrong kind of seafood. Getting a little too close to the third eye there. Yeah, oh, exactly. So regarding these, so regarding these forbidden books, now Casanova could have meant apocryphal religious texts, because at this point he was a clerical scholar. But he also may have been referencing one of the most popular rumors about the Vatican of that time, and the one that persists to this day. And I like this angle on it because it reflects more on his personality. That the Vatican houses the largest collection of erotica in the world, which would have been a mixture of uh, filthy pieces of writing and pieces of art, particularly from ancient Rome and Greece, meant to be shielded from public view for the sake of morality. Now, sadly, this rumor can be debunked as the world's largest collection of erotic artifacts, in fact, belongs to the Kinsey Institute in Indiana, although there was a vault of erotica that the Bishop of Naples founded soon after this time period in order to help defend public morality. Uh, Do you guys happen to know why? Little quiz? Actually, no. I don't. So, the same year, 1745, the first excavations of Pompeii and Herculaneum began. And they started uncovering all sorts of filthy shit that got buried. Thirsty people there. Well, I mean, it's Rome. You'll have a totem of Priapus outside your house so your vegetable garden grows. So, you've got this little statue of a dude 
Dude's five foot six. The dick's eight foot two. And he's always hard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's covering... Like, people just in their homes had frescoes of people mm-hmm. fucking on the walls. The, uh, in, especially in older Italian homes, you'll find them. And it's not something oh, yeah. that's, like, out and displayed. But, um, for fertility, it was a little, like, a little bobble, little ornament of a winged penis. Yeah. <clears throat> it was just a dick with wings. Yeah. It's a little, uh, there, I, we found when I was doing, when I was yeah. cleaning out this house, I found one. I probably still have it somewhere. I think. Yeah. You know, what, you know what's super funny? I think my mother has it. <laughs> <laughs> she thought it was fucking hilarious. But it was in a, it was in a box with a little Joseph. And yeah. a little Mary. <laughs> and just a, a little winged yeah. dick keychain. Well, it might have replaced the uh, the cacador. The little, the, the little shitting guy from, yep. the, <laughs> from the Spanish uh, oh. nativity scenes. So, the 20-year-old Casanova had uh, was soon to lose another gig due to scandal. Although, this really wasn't his doing. As the young priest who was the, uh, the chamberlain of the cardinal's household was caught in an affair with a local brothel madam. Now, making use of Casanova's already bad reputation, the Cardinal decided to make him the scapegoat for the whole thing in order to prevent the stain of the scandal from touching him, and Casanova was dismissed, although he likely received a pretty healthy payday for his troubles and in order to stay quiet. I love how you use the word stain. <laughs> it, it, yeah, there, it's another theme. <laughs> I mean, oh, this man's laundry bills. Oh, God. Ew. Ew. So, using this cash, he fell into another spate of reckless gambling. But Casanova had a good enough, enough good sense to take some of that money and use it to buy a commission as an officer in the Venetian army. And his first step was to look the part. Quote, Reflecting that there was now little likelihood of my achieving fortune in my ecclesiastical career, I decided to dress as a soldier. I inquired for a good tailor... He brought me everything I needed to impersonate a follower of Mars. My uniform was white, with a blue vest, a shoulder knot of silver and gold. I brought a long sword and my handsome cane in hand, a trim hat with a black cockade, and my hair cut in side whiskers and a long false pigtail. I set forth to impress the whole city. He was made to throw this outfit away immediately as he soon joined the <laughs> army. Yep. Turns out, yeah. that's not the standard military uniform. No, he just he designed his own military uniform, kind of strutted around for several hours before he had to get rid of it. Yeah, shades of Gregor McGregor there. Yep. yep. Point of clarification. Mm. Can I ask why Casanova seems to sound like a video game plumber? Mm. <laughs> Mamma mia! <laughs> Here we go! Oh. <laughs> so he, he was sent to join a regiment on the Greek island of Corfu, which was a Venetian possession at the time. And he also spent time in Constantinople as part of a diplomatic mission where he saw a rich city full of decadent pleasures that appealed to the bon vivant in him, and he witnessed examples of the miraculous fuck then that was the Ottoman Sultanate's great harem. <laughs> and this instilled in him a lifelong desire for travel. He expected to advance in rank quickly, and didn't, found his duty boring, and once again he found himself compulsively gambling and ended up in debt to some of his senior officers. Now, again, he beats feet, sells his commission, and returns to Venice, then decides he's going to take that money and become a true professional gambler. And that lasted him a week. Hard up for cash. He All turned... he does is lose. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's it. He's, not only is he a compulsive gambler, he's, he's horrible. He's a bad compulsive gambler. He's yeah. horrible. 
So, hard up for cash, he turns to his old benefactor and supposed real dad, Michele Grimani, for a job and gets a position as a violinist at the Teatro San Samuele. And even though it's not a well-paying gig, he finally found himself having a great time. He would spend a lot of time hanging out with the actors and the other musicians. He drank a lot. He spent a lot of time seducing apple-cheek barmaids and played endless practical jokes, stealing gondolas and taking them on joy rides, slow ones, one assumes, sending out doctors and midwives on false house calls, and setting various animals loose in the houses of the wealthy. An incident soon occurred when Casanova was riding with a Venetian senator named Matteo Bragadin in a gondola after a wedding ball. Now, Bragadin had a stroke and was taken back to his palace where doctors were summoned, who then bled him a bunch of times and applied an ointment of mercury to his chest, which was an all-purpose and highly toxic cure-all of the time. Go back and give our... Uh, Give our episode about the blockade of Charleston Harbor a listen. Yeah, we talk, we talk at great mercury, length about mercury. If you want to hear about mercury, yeah. A true miracle, a true miracle drug. <laughs> a true panacea. So this raised Bragadine's temperature and started to make his windpipe swell. And a priest was called for to give the man his last rites. But Casanova insisted against the protestations of the doctors that the ointment be removed and the senator bathed in cold water, which saved the man's life. And he made a good recovery. Now, owing the young Casanova a debt, Bragadine also thought him to be someone wise beyond his years and in possession of some sort of occult knowledge, something Bragadine was interested in. And so he made Casanova his legal counsel <coughs> and became his newest patron, a bond that would last for the rest of Bragadine's life. For the next several years, Casanova would live the good life, having access to fine clothes, able to gamble freely, and he did, of course, Spent an awful lot of time getting out there and trying to drop the old hog with whatever servant girls and prostitutes he could get his hands on. A scandal once again rose, however. Now, Casanova dug up a freshly cured, a freshly buried corpse in order to play a practical joke against a romantic rival, a man of some wealth and standing. Unfortunately, it scared the man so much that he had a stroke and was left paralyzed for life. Second, a young girl who Casanova had embarrassed accused him of rape and went to Venetian officials, and while he was later acquitted due to lack of evidence, he had already fled Venice for the city of Parma. It wasn't wasn't rape. It was gang rape. Oh, well, that's a different story. <laughs> yeah. We're getting to that. Oh, I thought this was the same. Oh, well, no, they're no, all different. Girl. Uh, yeah, it's a different time. I'll bring it up now. He there's has to a, flee. A, he also tells <laughs> stories in... Um, in his autobiography of, like, putting on masks with a bunch of other dudes during a carnival and running around and... and yeah, I mean... I'm, yeah, like going into people, like essentially gang raping girls in the alleys in in Venice. Yeah, they would like run into people's yeah. houses and like call the doctor and then run away, even though that person didn't need a doctor. They just thought it would be a funny thing to do and then rape people. Yeah, a very um, mm. what a guy, old Casanova is just making up his own his own uniform. And shades, just... shades of the old ultra violence there. Yep. Mm. So scandal. <laughs> so, uh, so in Parma, he began a three month affair with a French woman he called Henriette. And she made a hell of an impact on him. This was the, the first real great love of his life. He wrote of her, quote, They who believe that a woman is incapable of making a man equally happy all the 24 hours of the day have never known an Henriette. The joy which flooded my soul was far greater when I conversed with her during the day than when I held her in my arms at night. Having read a great deal and having natural taste, Henriette judged rightly of everything. Uh, Casanova biographer J. Rivas Childs wrote about Henriette, quote, Perhaps no woman so captivated Casanova as Henriette. Few women obtained so deep an understanding of him. 
She penetrated his outward shell early in their relationship, as he probably did to her. Yeah, I was going to say, among other things. Yeah, this is, I'm, I'm preempting your dick jokes, guys. I'm, I'm still running the show here. <laughs> you can't take this from me. I'll find a way in. Uh, res- she resisted the temptation to unite her destiny with his. She came to discern his volatile nature, his lack of social background, and the precariousness of his finances. But before leaving, she slipped into his pocket 500 francs, mark of her evaluation of him. So it's like, that's fine, so great. I'm leaving, here's some money. Yeah, here you go. This was fine. Thanks for the banging. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, it, it, is this something we should like, consider bringing back? <laughs> I, think it's, I think it never went away. <laughs> well, no, but I like this. This, this is a, this she is a power a sugar move. Mama, basically. Right, this is a yeah. power move. Yeah. She's like, mm, there are yeah, websites for this you're shit worth now. this much. Bye. Yeah. Like she had, she held all the cards here, and it's amazing. Yeah. So the end of the affair left him crestfallen, depressed, and utterly despondent. Now, returning to Venice in 1750, at the age of 25, he finally hit a good gambling streak and used that considerable sum of money to set off on his own version of the Grand Tour, making his way to Paris to visit his brother Francesco. Along the way, stopping in places like Geneva and Lyon. He continued to get into sexual escapades, not seemingly for the sake of getting laid, but for the stories. He would seek out situations where a woman was the victim of a brutish or jealous partner and play the part of the gallant rescuer in what seemed like an opera in four acts. He Act- uses the dentist system. Yeah. Oh, no. He oh, uses no. the dentist he system. Does. He His is four acts, yeah. but it's the dentist system. He was in Venice. It's always on a boat. Mm-hmm. It becomes about the implications. It's about the implications. These women are never in any danger. So, yes, yeah, so it's like an opera in four acts. Act one, you discover the damsel in distress and you make your presence known. Act two, you ameliorate her difficulty. Act three, she shows her gratitude. He seduces her as a result and a short as exciting affair ensues. Act four, he feels boredom or a loss of passion. He pleads his unworthiness and arranges for her a marriage to a wealthy man and exits the scene. Tell me how that is any different than demonstrate value, (laughs) engage physically, nurture dependence, neglect emotionally, inspire hope, and separate entirely. You know what the difference is? About two and a half centuries. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) It's the dentist system. So in his The Mac system, move in after completion. (laughs) The Frank system. (laughs) I pull my my Watt 100s, pull my, my monster condom from my Magnum dong. Let him know I'm ready to plow. <laughs> so, <laughs> God damn it. Frank, you're not demonstrating value. My condom is demonstrating that I have a monster dong. <laughs> Peak of human sexuality, Danny DeVito. <laughs> so, in his, so in Casanova's travels, he also became acquainted with two other important facets in his life. One was secret societies. He entered the Order of the Freemasons in Lyon and would continue his membership throughout his life making the most of those connections in his travels. He also expressed interest in Rosicrucianism and other esoteric belief systems, and in letters expressed interest in joining none other than the infamous Anglo-Irish Hellfire Clubs. The second thing he got to learning about was something he was introduced to in Switzerland, something that at the time was known as an assurance cap. Yep, condoms. Yep. Now, for all of the fucking he actually did and all the STDs he still managed to catch... There are a remarkably low number of pieces of evidence su- suggesting that he fathered a lot of illegitimate children. Well, our game could be strong. Well, I, I don't. We'll get, to, we'll get to that, too. Which points to Casanova. Good, well, good. It, well, what it does is it, Can't wait for that. <laughs> which, which points to Casanova at some point 
having some sort of sense of responsibility and a belief in the principles of safe sex. Now, or, the, I mean, honestly, for having such horrible issues with feeling unwanted by family, yeah. he may have just legitimately not wanted to have a bunch of children he couldn't that, take care of. You make a very, very good point there. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I think that, that might be where it stands from. And the, from. the one thing that this man clearly valued above all else, uh, more than the, the, the clothes or the mm-hmm. gambling... Or the womanizing, was his independence. Yeah, that's also. And he didn't. A he didn't really too. want to be saddled yeah. down. He didn't want to be beholden <laughs> to anyone, which he really wasn't. I mean, it, if you think about it, all this guy did was kind of collect wealthy people to give him money, and just go do whatever the fuck he wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's also important to note too that in the 18th century, uh, condoms, you didn't buy them in a 12 pack. You just used it. You washed, you washed it out. It, you used you it again. Fairly <laughs> condom. Yeah. Maybe use it to protect your leather dildos imported from Holland. There's a callback. To there's it. A, there's a Dutch dildo joke. <laughs> I thought when you when you mentioned evidence and condoms, you were gonna say that they actually found one. Uh, I mean, be, they, it was still in his wallet. Century condoms. There. Well, no, I meant one of his. He turned off the light and it was just still glowing. He was probably buried with the damn thing. Talk, talk up amongst yourselves. I would hope so. Him. Yeah, it's like, that's why it's just a little spot where like nothing will grow. <laughs> Some archaeologist is digging something up and, uh-oh, we better call the CDC. This is a man who, it looks like this a, is a man who on his way sock. back to Venice had a doctor stop, thank him for all of the money from the STDs that he spread, and then give him money. I was like, guy, thank you so much. Th- like he, lo- he heard he was in town. The guy was all excited. Dude, you're paying for my swimming pool. Yeah. <laughs> Buddy, you put my kids through college. Yeah. So after arriving in Paris, Casanova would spend two years there, becoming fluent in French, attending the theater, meeting various notables, using his patronage from the Braga Deans in, uh, for both social inroads and cash to fund these meetings, uh, gambling, of course, and getting to lay the know of the sexual land in Paris. However, the secret police of the French monarchy worried that he was a Venetian spy, were watching him the whole time. And once his efforts at seduction started getting a little too high up the ladder of the French aristocracy, some heat was applied, and in 1752 he and his brother moved to Dresden, Germany, where his mother and sister Maria were living. In the year he spent there, he wrote and published two plays, the first of what would become more than 20 literary works, and he would cast his own mom in the lead roles, which I, I think is actually kind of sweet. Yeah, that's the only <laughs> odd moment we're getting in this entire friggin' episode. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a lot more ooze than ahs. It's, it, this is the that's the least gross thing that we're going to talk about. So after making stops in Prague and Vienna, he returned to Venice in 1753. Wasted no time getting up to his old tricks, but he was now getting too much attention. Government inquisitors began accruing a lengthy record of his reported blasphemies, fights, seductions, and public controversies, and even broke into his home to examine his library for forbidden occult books. On July 26, 1755. After sufficiently building their case, the Inquisitors arrested the 30-year-old Casanova for affronts to religion and common decency, and took him to jail in the Doge's. Uh, took him to a jail in the Doge's palace known as the Leads for the lead plates that would cover the roof. Without any and the sort walls. Of, hmm? And the walls. This whole building was just total. I thought it was a roof. The whole building was just sheathed in lead. Yeah. Did they build it for Superman? Pretty much. <laughs> so. Without any sort of trial or even being informed of the charges, Casanova is automatically given a sentence of five years in solitary confinement in dire conditions. Now, his patron, Bragadine, intervened, and after five months, 
Casanova was given more lenient conditions, including better food, access to medicine, books, and the ability to take exercise walks around the prison grounds. He soon found a piece of marble and an iron bar, which he smuggled back to his cell, sharpened the bar into a spike, and was using it to dig through the wooden floor of his cell, which was right above the Inquisitor's chambers. That's my favorite part. Whenever he pokes through, he's just looking down into it. He's like, "Uh uh-oh. (laughs) Uh, He was intending to escape during a festival when he knew he would be left alone and the room would be unguarded. Three days before the festival, he was moved to a bigger, brighter cell with windows, despite his protests that he was perfectly happy where he was. Thank you very much. He soon concocted a new escape plan with his cellmate, an accused spy, and his neighbor, a renegade priest named Father Balbi. The spike, which had been hidden in Casanova's armchair, was passed off to Balbi while concealed in a big folio Bible. The priest made a hole in the ceiling of his own cell, broke through the ceiling of Casanova's cell, and while the spy was too scared to join the escape, Bobby and Casanova prized open one of the lead plates and climbed onto the roof he of the He had doges. asked, they made a lantern so that he could yeah. work at night, and he asked the guard to get him various pieces of this lantern that, I would, that he would later go on to construct. Casanova broke out of jail by asking nicely. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, and uh, because they were having a hard time getting the spy in on it, turns out he was also a deeply, a deeply religious man. Casanova said that he had a dream that an angel would come through the ceiling, and right at the scheduled time, he's like, "This morning, he's like the angel's going to come to me. He's going to get so us." So brilliant! He comes. The priest comes crashing through the ceiling, yes. like he <laughs> like burst through the ceiling, like collapsed, and made a huge noise. Yeah. And then the guy's like, "Well, let's do this." <laughs> I want to see these three years as a Coen Brothers film. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So he turned me into a toad. Damn, we're a tight spot. So they climb out onto the roof of the Doge's palace, concealed by thick fog at night. They break open a window to get back into the building because they stop and they look down into the canal and go, well, that'll kill us. <laughs> yeah, and the roof was slick, and they were like, well, we're going to fucking die before we get out of here. So they break back into jail. They break back in... No, they're, they're not in the jail part anymore. Now they're just yeah. two escaped convicts walking around the King of Venice's palace. <laughs> so they worked their way down to the lower stories, so they found clothes to change into. I don't know where from. I hope it was the old uniform that they, <laughs> they confiscated. <laughs> Welcome back, baby. <laughs> Daddy's home. It was 15 months. It was all Casanova spank rags. Oh, oh, crunch, 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 crunch. Why are these socks so hard? <laughs> Anybody else smell bleach? <laughs> so they managed to, as, as morning comes, they managed to talk their way past all the guards and just walk out. They go to a canal, they steal a gondola. An escape gondola. They they steal an escape gondola, make their way to a ship, and beg their way aboard. And Casanova and Balbi part ways, and Casanova goes right back to Paris. I'm just picturing a high-speed gondola chase. About four and a half miles an hour. It, like, like the guys in the back, they're dressed like highway patrolmen. Like they have aviators, and there's a blue light. Just <laughs> Eric Estrada with a pole like, pushing one along. It was like, do we do like '70s like bongo music in the background? Like, so knowing that we couldn't go back to Venice, Costa- and all of a sudden you see the the, the Pacific Rim canyons along the side <laughs> because. The, the, because we know that's where it got filmed. Yes, absolutely. 
Eric Estrada pulling the pole up, adjusting the toupee, putting it back in the water. <laughs> Just real slow. <laughs> so knowing that he couldn't go back to Venice, Casanova made plans for a long stay in Paris and knew that this time his actions would have to be a little more calculated and deliberate. He contacted Francois-Pierre de Bernie, an old friend and gambling buddy who was by now France's foreign minister. De Bernie advised him that the way to earn instant favor was to find a means of raising state funds. Now, what we have to remember is that in spite of Casanova's reputation primarily as a horn dog, he was very smart, he was very calculating, and in addition to being skilled as a writer, he was very, very good with accounting and mathematics so long as he wasn't losing at all at gambling. He suggested to the interior minister, one of de Bernie's friends, the idea of a formation of France's first national lottery, and was soon not only one of its trustees, but he became its star ticket salesman, which earned him the trust of the French government and a quick fortune. He started hanging out again in aristocratic circles, once again fell into his old habits of seduction, because that's going to be a given with him, but he also started working a new angle with some of the more gullible socialites among the nobility. Alchemy, numerology, and the occult. Now, exploring these things was already a popular pastime among France's great and good, but Casanova managed to convince a lot of people that he did have special gifts, especially one particularly gullible dupe, a wealthy lesbian widow named the Marquise Jean Dorfay, who believed Casanova to be the most powerful sorcerer in Europe. He, but, well, he wasn't the only one working this angle either. Want to see my staff? Oh, Christ. Yikes. He wasn't the only one working this angle either. Now, there was a fellow named the Comte de Saint-Germain d'Alembert, who Casanova described thus, quote, These very singular men, born to be the most barefaced of all impostors, declared with impunity and a casual air, that he was 300 years old, that he possessed the universal medicine, that he made anything he liked from nature, and that he could create diamonds." End quote. Now soon, de Bernice sent Casanova to a new profession, that of a spy. The Seven Years' War, the first truly worldwide war, was on the cusp of being declared, and Casanova was sent to the ports along the English Channel and in the Low Countries to investigate and report on possible efforts to aid the English. He was soon sent to Amsterdam, Europe's financial capital at the time, and spent the next several years selling state bonds to raise funds for the war effort, which he was admittedly spectacularly good at. Well, why wouldn't he be good at yeah. it? He's a good talker. He's on a Gregor McGregor level of salesman. Yeah, I think he's less of a yeah. psychopath kind of level, but oh, as yeah. far as sales, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's good at selling things. Look at what he's done his whole life. Yeah. Uh, and he's so good at it that the French offered him title and a pension if he became a French citizen, an offer he turned down. Mm -hmm. Now, he even started a silk factory with his earnings, but he lost it all due to poor management of the business, borrowing too heavily, and of course, spending way too much on gambling and funding the seductions of what he called his harem, which was made up entirely of female workers in his silk factory. Now, once again, in 1760, he was thrown into debtor's prison, but was liberated at the insistence of the Marquise d'Urfay. Unfortunately, his patron, de Bernie, had been dismissed by the French king, so Casanova's support system was pretty much gone. He sold his belongings and secured one final mission to Holland to put distance between himself and his troubles. He took the funds given to him for the mission, but instead of following through, he packed his shit and headed off to wander Europe, courtesy of the French crown. He managed to lose all of that money given to him by the French government in Cologne and Stuttgart and was arrested again in Stuttgart for unpaid debts and public indecency. But he managed to escape. Unfortunately, we don't have any details of this escape, unlike 
the Doge's palace, and he escapes to the Swiss town of uh, Einsiedeln, which I think I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, which was home to a large Benedictine monastery. Now, weary of being on the run, Casanova gave serious thought to, uh, to giving up everything and taking up the simple scholarly mantle of a monk. But when he returned to his hotel, a man had moved into the next suite over, and this man had himself a smoking hot wife. So Casanova's thinking about becoming a monk, gets one glimpse of the dude's wife and goes, nah. I feel like that's happened to a lot of people. <laughs> I feel like yeah. Casanova was not alone in this. It's And unlike being a priest or a bishop or a Camerlango, when you're a monk and you're secluded within a Benedictine abbey, it's a lot harder to break the whole vow of chastity thing. Well, I mean, unless you get creative. <laughs> well, yeah, you got to be sneaky about it. And don't get me wrong, I'm absolutely sure that Casanova would have found a way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's just weird to me that like he always goes back to the seminary in some way. Like He always goes back to a career in the church yeah. for some reason. And then immediately he's like, oh, no, this is bad. Well, I think because he was introduced to that ecclesiastical world and that the kindness of Abbe Gozzi when he was still a kid. Mm -hmm. He was nine years old, and, and this guy reached out to him and was kind to him. And his first experience with work was in an ecclesiastical field. I mean, at, at one point, he did give an actual sermon. Like He, he was... Oh, yeah. He gave a sermon, and the, second, and the first one was apparently so good that he was going to be offered a contract to, to continue <laughs> to do this, and he was going to be paid handsomely. And the second one was so bad that he stumbled his way through the whole sermon, freaked out, Passed out and hit his head on the wall. Yep. And then, like, then they took him to the hospital. And he was so embarrassed that he just quit the church. <laughs> yep. Well, so when this man succeeds, boy, does he ever. Yeah. But on the other hand, oh man, <laughs> a man like just a man stuttering, stumbling over his words, sweating profusely, and then passing out and smashing his head, busting his skull open yeah. on the wall behind him. Well, if it was a non-denominational charismatic church, he would have been. Elevated the bishop. Yeah, yeah. right away. <laughs> so he's speaking in tongues. Somebody get him a snake. So Casanova. <laughs> so Casanova. He's like, I got a snake. Do you have to be playing the flute while we do this? Yeah. Skin flute. <laughs> so he spent. The, this is my pink obo. Do you like? So he spent the uh, the next couple of years hopping from city to city. Seeking patronage, conning gullible wealthy people. Of course, he was getting some fucking done, and meeting and he was meeting leading figures of the Enlightenment, like Voltaire and Albrecht von Haller, in places like Marseille, Genoa, Florence, and Naples. Now, during this time, he began styling himself as a French nobleman with the sobriquet of Chevalier de Senegal, which was a name he would use for the rest of his life. Now, he decided this was the right time, having stolen French government funds and using an unearned French noble title to go back to Paris. He found patronage again with the Marquise d'Orfay and set about conning money from her in a scheme where he promised <coughs> that using occult means he could turn her from an old woman to a young man. Because she was old, she was gay, and she wanted to get out and seduce young women. So she asked, could you turn me into a young man? He goes, yep, yeah. I don't see any reason why I cannot. <laughs> So after a year of stringing her along and being unable to follow through, she finally went to the authorities seeking his arrest. And Casanova then packs his belongings, robs the Marquise's household of most of her jewelry, and beats feet to London in 1763. 
thinking he can sell the idea of the national lottery to the English government in order to help them recoup funds drained by the now-finished Seven Years' War. There's one problem. England had been doing national lotteries since 1694, <laughs> and they had their biggest one yet going on at the time that Casanova was in <laughs> London trying to sell the idea. Whenever he wins, he wins big. <laughs> Whenever he fucks up, he fucks up spectacularly. He still manages to bribe his way up the chain using the Marquis's stolen jewels, and he even gets an audience with King George III. But the scheme, of course, comes to naught. Now, in the meantime, as a means of finding women to shtup, since he couldn't speak English, he started putting out ads in newspapers to let an apartment to the, quote, right person, and soon went about seducing every female lessee who would walk in trying to get the apartment. He founded the casting couch. Yes. Correct. So for our Western Pennsylvania listeners, he was the first Nick Perry. Oh my God, yes. He was the guy that pulled the 666 ball. Yeah. And then had the the, the bowling for dollars with it kissing all the pretty girls and everything. No whammy, no whammy, no whammy, no whammy. But imagine if Nick Perry showed up and Nick Perry already had, there was another Nick Perry, but they already had a job. That was him in England. (laughs) (laughs) So it was in, of course, merry old England, however, where the scourge of venereal disease really finally started to catch up with Casanova. A nasty case of syphilis had left him weak and broke, and he fled England to recover in the Netherlands. Now, from there, he spent three more years traveling all over Europe, attempting to sell his lottery scheme to the various crown heads of the continent. He traveled over 4,500 miles by coach in this period, getting as far as Moscow and St. Petersburg, and even gaining audiences with rulers such as Frederick the Great of Prussia, Charles III, King of Spain, and, of course... Catherine the Great. Have at it, gentlemen. That's our girl. Oh, no. Do you think he was horse-sized? Oh, God. He was six feet tall. He was a big fella. Every... All the anecdotal evidence out there does point to the fact that Casanova did have a big dick. Yeah, I mean, and that's not just the stuff that's in his book where he talks about his giant wang. No, like (laughs) letters written about Casanova between noble women talk about the size of his schwanz. Yeah, like the the dude's packing in like In like code. In like... like, But Catherine the Great big. (laughs) Shetland pony big. I don't think he had to wrap it around his waist like a belt, but... All I heard is that when he pulls it out... walking down and just hitting the top of his shoes. (laughs) When he pulls it out... The whole room smells like a dick. It's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's gaming. This is 18th century dick, too. Oh, no. Oh. 18th century French dick. Oh, it's oh. Boston. <laughs> Red wine. The gourmand. <laughs> the gourmand. It's, so it's like a fine-aged cheese. Where the hell did we... Jesus. How did we end up here? I, how are we talking about a room full of dick... <laughs> Uh, oh, it was Catherine the Great. It was Catherine yeah. the Great. That's how. I, I don't I don't know. But yeah, I'm so glad that we could get to back to our favorite cowgirl. And now you just got him out there just taking it down. So, it, like That's not the only person on our podcast that we've talked about doing so. No. Not even close. No, We're so, not even really talking about the horse. So he's meeting with kings and queens. <laughs> the whole time he's try, still trying to scheme people. He's still trying to fuck people. Although, by the end of this period, his reputation is starting to precede him. And in 1766, he was expelled from Poland after a pistol duel with one Colonel Franciszek Brunicki caused by competitions to seduce an Italian actress, 
where Casanova was shot in the left hand. Now, doctors recommended amputation, but Casanova refused, and he managed to fight off infection, and the hand recovered on its own. Now, he really didn't want his hand to be cut, his left hand to be cut off. Do you think he went southpaw? He, he must was... have been. That's the because oh, he was very like <laughs> they will never take my jerking hand. <laughs> Who doesn't do the stranger every once? Like, in a I'm an old man. I can't switch now. <laughs> he's setting. Yeah, he's in his forties now. He's setting his ways. <laughs> so. He returned to Dresden, where another STD bout left him sick and weak. That's the second worst thing that's ever happened in Dresden. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh. USA. 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 <laughs> uh, and so he decides, like, I can't stay here. It's a bad climate for trying to recover from another STD bout. So he goes back to Paris! It didn't take long for him to be expelled again, though. It, it happened pretty much instantaneously. Somebody heard he was back. And this time, he was officially banned from ever entering France again on pain of death by an order from none other than King Louis XV himself. Wow. And so, Casanova flees to Rome. Now, once in Rome, he's trying to figure out how to put his life back together. He falls back on his gambler's instinct, and he takes a real chance. He starts writing to some old contacts back in Venice in order to see if he could manage to finagle getting safe legal passage back into the city. Now, this process takes years... And while waiting for it to all get sorted out, he starts writing, including a few comedic plays, a Tuscan translation of the Iliad, and a history of Poland, for some reason. Uh, he also volunteers to be a spy for Venice, reporting on the goings-on in their rival papal states. Remember that Italy is in a series of city-states at this point. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be unified for another hundred years, in order to curry favor with the Venetian government. And it finally pays off. In September of 1774, after 18 years of being away from his home city, he receives a letter from the Inquisitors of State giving him safe conduct back to Venice and absolving him of all previous crimes. He comes back, and when he does, he's actually something of a celebrity. Even the Inquisitors meet with him just to get the full story about his escape from prison. Just sitting down going, so how'd you do that? Well, it should be noticed that he and the priest yeah. were the only two that ever escaped Ever the escaped, yeah. So he decides that he's going to focus on being a writer, but that wasn't paying the bills. So he becomes a spy for the state inquisitors, reporting on the salacious activities of his acquaintances and contacts, most of it, of course, based on rossip, uh, uh, rumor, gossip, or if you're saying bullshit. Now, things, however, are now fundamentally different for him. He's now 49 years old. The years of reckless living and hard travel have caught up with him. You know what they say, snitches get syphilis. <laughs> Is that what they say, Kyle? Yes. I don't want to be in your <laughs> it's mafia. A, it's a regional dialect. <laughs> I don't want to be in your mafia. <laughs> So, he's got a scarred face, his cheeks are sunken, and he had boils on his face to go with the, with the smallpox scars. Uh, Prince Charles de Ligne, a friend in the Austrian aristocracy, said, quote, he would be a good-looking man if he were not so ugly. The same thing has been said about me. Yeah, I think. That's who is de Ligne. <laughs> it's so goddamn funny. <laughs> so, he had little money for gambling, he had few willing lim uh, women to pursue, he was bored, and he was prone to bouts of melancholy. He also received word in November of 1776 that his mother had died in Dresden, and in the next month he found himself at the deathbed of Bettina Gozzi, who had first introduced him to sex. He <laughs> sparred with thinkers and philosophers in published correspondences, and a series of published books and plays failed to find any popularity, although he did manage to find a partner in an uneducated seamstress named Francesca, who became his lover and live-in housekeeper, and who was very loving and completely devoted to him. 
when in 1783 he was once again expelled from Venice after publishing a vicious satire that poked fun at the Venetian government and aristocracy, and he picked up stakes and once again went to... Any guesses? <laughs> Paris. How does he keep... Like, why is that always the answer? Well, this time in Paris... Well, okay. Here's why Paris works this time. Louis XV is dead. That decree is no longer active. It's Louis Sixteenth now in charge. So... In Paris, he spent time with a, uh, a little-known figure named... Oh, wait, hold on. How do I pronounce this guy's name? Benjamin Franklin. Seems familiar. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And unashamedly used Franklin as a wingman in order to once again get down to business with some French women. So this is the sequel to the Coen Brothers film I want to see. <laughs> I have no idea how sexually depraved you have to be when Ben Franklin is your wingman. Yeah, just he's the, the side. He, he he's the sidekick. Do you think he's they, the Robin to Casanova's Batman? Okay, so it's seven. It's. Do you think they would have called it the Eiffel Tower, even though the Eiffel Tower wasn't built for another century? That's what they named it after. Uh, okay, that's yeah. what they named it. After. It makes sense. It's now. the high five. Yeah. Oh, it makes so much sense. Just yeah. Casanova and Benjamin Franklin on the opposite ends of some just all some poor woman all gangrenous <laughs> and. You've got, you've got Franklin, who's as wide as he is tall, and Casanova, yeah. who looks like a... I don't even know. Just imagine what it looked like at that point. Like, Casanova just whips out, like, an old gnarled tree branch. Jesus. It's got, like, calluses and shit on it. Kyle is now stabbing himself just in the back, ear in the base of the skull. Oh, God. Oh, man. So... Uh, he ends up. So, <laughs> oh, we lost. Smell him. like a morgue. <laughs> <laughs> so he's then, a, lot of, a lot of smells in today's episode. So he's then because all of us have been congested for a week. Yeah. This is where they came up with Sex Panther. It smells like Bigfoot's <laughs> dick. Moving on. <laughs> Those 2004 hot takes. He, so Casanova's then hired a secretary to Sebastian Foscarini. Venetian ambassador to the to Austria, where he becomes acquainted with people like Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and Johann von Goethe. Now, this is one of those times where, yeah. dear listener, you're going to remember that all these motherfuckers were alive at the same time. Because like any time you hear about and these people hanging like, out in the same places and plowing yeah. the same people, yeah, like one assumes, yeah, Paris in in like the 1770s and 1780s, everybody would, like it's like Paris in the 20s. Yeah. Well, like F. Scott Fitzgerald's just hanging out with Hemingway and like Picasso. Well I, well, I mean, that's why we talked about these cultural centers of Europe being these stops on the Grand Tour. Yeah. There's a reason that these wealthy guys would go to these places. It's because this is where the great and good of, of art, philosophy, natural science, all of it, this is where these people would gather. And they did not yet have Lolita Island. Oh. <laughs> well, they, they, they did, but you got to it by gondola. Oh, God. So, Foscarini died in 1785, and he leaves uh, Casanova once again without a gig. But after a few months, he was hired as the librarian to Count Josef Karl von Waldstein, second in command to the Holy Roman Emperor and ruler of the province of Bohemia, what is now the Czech Republic. Now, the Count, who was himself a Freemason, Kabbalist, traveler, and womanizer, took to Casanova very quickly, loved the guy's stories, and installed himself and installed him at his castle home in the town of Dux. Now, although the job offered decent, stable pay and easy living, Casanova was constantly bored. He's in declining health, and he's thoroughly disliked by everybody else on the count's staff. 
any he says in his writing that his fox terriers were his only friends. Mm. It's hard to feel bad for this dude. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I felt a twinge there, and I'm past it now. So, in addition, the count was eccentric, often ignoring Casanova at meals and failing to introduce him to important guests. Now, his only escape from the boredom were occasional trips to Dresden and Prague, where he was able to spend time with his high society friends. And he claimed that in this period, and this is, I'm going to say, about a 99.9 repeating chance of bullshit, that he <laughs> contributed to the lyrics of Mozart's famed operas Don Giovanni and Cosi Fantuti. He also wrote what is probably the most famous of his works next to his autobiography, a five-volume, 1,800-page story called Ica Samarin, which is a trippy, weird story about a brother and sister named Edward and Elizabeth who were shipwrecked and end up living in a utopia inside of the hollow earth for 81 years, marrying each other, spawning 40 sets of twins, whilst living amongst a race of multicolored hermaphroditic dwarves. Now, but it also has concepts like mechanical music, flying machines, uh, electric telegraphy, and other technologies that for the time actually make it, in spite of its weirdness, a stunning work of science fiction. It's like if Jules Verne was just hung. (laughs) (laughs) Prove to me he wasn't. Well, we don't have a bunch of letters talking about his giant wang. Okay, good point. Yeah. Yeah. So, over the course of three years, from 1789 to 1792, he also wrote a 12-volume French-language memoir, Histoire de ma vie, The Story of My Life, of which we pulled the stories, uh, of which we pulled the stories from that we've told today. He began with the words, quote, I begin by declaring to my reader that by everything good or bad that I have done throughout my life, I am sure that I have earned merit or incurred guilt and that hence I must consider myself a free agent. Despite an excellent moral foundation, the inevitable fruit of these divine principles which were rooted in my heart, I was all my life the victim of my senses. I have delighted in going astray, and I have constantly lived in error, with no other consolation than that of knowing I have erred. My follies were the follies of youth. You will see that I laugh at them, and if you are kind, you will laugh at them with me. By the end of the 18th century, however, Casanova is an old man, he's tired, and his health is failing. In 1797, word arrived that the Republic of Venice was no more, having been seized by Napoleon Bonaparte and absorbed into his growing empire. And on the 4th of June, 1798, after suffering from kidney failure, Giacomo Casanova died in Dux Castle at the age of 73. His last words were, quote, I have lived as a philosopher, and I die as a Christian. He was buried in the town cemetery. But it's nice to see that like, he was just as Christian as Christians today are Christian. <laughs> just really, really standing to that same moral fiber. I mean, to be fair, <laughs> can't find forgiveness from sin if you don't sin. That's true. Uh, they both fucked <clears throat> underage boys. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, he had a, a 14-year-old male lover. Yeah. And a 12-year-old slave. We're getting <laughs> to that. <laughs> That's the thing is... We're telling the stories that he told, and, and uh, that's the story. Now comes the analysis. Um, but actually, it's also worth noting that the exact place of his grave has been forgotten and over the years, and it remains unknown to this day. They know he's buried in Dux, which is now Dukau, but they don't know where. So Casanova's legacy is absolutely... Weren't most of the bodies moved? Uh, it's possible. It's Some of them may have been. super frequently. He's, yeah, got a, he's got a plaque. Mm-hmm. 
There is a plaque. Yeah, but it's also like at the entrance to the cemetery. Yeah, it's... We think he's buried somewhere around here. Mm -hmm. So Casanova's legacy is absolutely clear. His last name has become a byword for a Lothario, a seduction artist, a womanizer, or to put it in 21st century parlance, a fuckboy. In spite of all of his schemes and adventures, he is best known for his sexual exploits and for good reason. In his memoir, he specifically lays out details, details, of the seductions of over 120 women and makes veiled references to several potential male lovers as well and states that there were thousands more not specifically discussed. At least he was more open about it than Marshall Applewhite. Yeah. Yeah. It's a oof. But we're also talking like Wilt Chamberlain numbers. True. So regarding Who his... are you more willing to believe? Gene Simmons or Giacomo Casanova? Giacomo Casanova. That's fair. Because I don't want to live in a world where Gene Simmons is ever right. <laughs> but if you replace Simmons with Chamberlain, I'm going to Chamberlain just because logistically I imagine it'd be a lot easier with travel as it is. And... Yeah. I get it. Well, uh, still. Yeah, it's a lot It's a lot easier to do when you're chartering your very own Boeing 707. Guy had 100 points in a game. Fucking Chamberlain, man. Yeah. I'd fuck him. <laughs> it's 100 points in a game. Smash. <laughs> <laughs> so regarding his love of sex, Casanova said this, quote, Cultivating whatever gave pleasure to my senses was always the chief business of my life. I never found any occupation the more important. Feeling that I was born for the sex opposite of mine, I have always loved it and done all that I could to make myself loved by it. End quote. Casanova's a complicated character when it comes to women, as he writes in his memoir of his love and admiration for women who were not wallflowers or simply physically attractive. He writes of his love for women who were intelligent, educated, and had wit, charm, and fire. Now, he stated that he never engaged in any sex without mutual consent. Almost certainly not true. And would not use alcohol or he violence together. He bought a 12-year-old sex slave. Yeah. <laughs> in Russia. Yeah. He, it, I don't give a fuck where he bought his slave. Yeah. In Russia. So, he also stated that he never used alcohol or violence to get his way. That I find to be a statement that might be a little more believable. But again, but we're it also wasn't, dealing with It's not that he century. wasn't like prone to violence either. Because when, whenever he was, yeah. he was laid up in a monastery, um, he snuck out, beat the ever-loving shit out of a, like a rival suitor. Mm-hmm. And like, they beat him badly and threw him in a canal. And yeah. the only... Like, <laughs> and the guy lived. Like I live, but like he snuck back into the, again like into it was in a fucking fortress. Yeah. So he sneaks back in and tells everybody like, oh my stomach hurts and all that. So he's like in the infirmary, and that was his alibi. So he gets away with it. But the yeah. guy saw him like he knew exactly <laughs> yeah. who it was. And it being Casanova, he probably announced himself like a great flourish and like bonked him on the head with a frying pan. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was his frying pan that he hit him on. It the was head, like El Cabal. He, he lassoed him with it. <laughs> and I'm still trying to get over the fact that. Uh, Based on your description, based on his own description, he'd be the kind of guy that would have fucked Lena Dunham. Oh, man. Another Lena Dunham reference. She'd never shut up about it. <sighs> now, by contrast... He, <laughs> She'd how, be so yeah. offended if he didn't. <laughs> yeah. No, by, yeah oh. Where was that? The Met Gala? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, by contrast, he also did tend to send his attentions towards insecure or emotionally exposed women as potential conquests. And a lot of the acts he does describe would fall under the modern definitions of sexual assault. And although there isn't a pattern of it in his tales of seduction, 
there are definite moments where his activities do delve into the realm of the pedophilic. We tell these stories because they're interesting, because they're amusing, but he is not a good dude. No. I mean, no. yeah, he's, he's, he's a real piece of work. I mean, it's, it's, it's that simple. But nevertheless, people have been fascinated by Casanova over the last couple centuries, and films, TV shows, books, operas, and songs have all sought to retell his story or take inspiration from it, and they continue to be made. And I think the reason for that can be taken from two of the last lines he wrote in the last volume of his autobiography. The first, quote, As for myself, I always willingly acknowledge my own self as the principal cause of every good and of every evil which may befall me. Therefore, I have always found myself capable of being my own pupil and ready to love my teacher. And finally, and simply, quote, Nobody can deprive me of the fact that I had a good time. And thus ends the story of Giacomo Casanova. Wow. What were, what were our big takeaways today? Uh, well, we, it's something I, I said that we discussed. I mean, we, we acknowledge that a lot of the, that almost all those all these stories are out of his autobiography. It's highly likely that a large portion of it is bullshit. But we said that this is an, a, an, a story where if just 10% of it is true, he's still a fascinating individual. My big takeaway is that he was an adventurer. We're really only like three generations away from that. And like we fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a bartender. That's like nowhere near as cool. Well, there are adventurers, but they're all on Instagram. They're Instagram influencers and their dad's own, own oil companies. Yep. No, the age of adventurers is over. I mean, hey, here's here's a good take. Look at Tiger Woods, golf pro. What's he fucking? Hooters waitresses, Waffle House waitresses, bro. Yeah, I mean, yikes! The adventurers don't exist anymore. I, I for one, admire his abandonment of his elitism. Yeah, Tiger Woods. I mean, not Casanova. No, no, no. <laughs> Everyone, uh, when Tiger Woods lost the house and then she just knocked a fucker down, she was like, yeah, termites. It just knocked the fucker down. <laughs> I, I had a discussion after this happened with my father. and I, I said, well, It's like, like, like Lefty Lopez yeah. burning down Andre Ryzen's house. Bad Moon Rising. Was, uh, do you think she meant to burn the house down? I don't know. I don't think she did. I think she was trying to send a message. And then, did... <laughs> yeah, I mean that was a message. What's funnier, her burning down Andre Ryzen's house, or Najee Davenport pooping in a in a hamper? Because uh, they both in the dump truck. They both went to jail for it. <laughs> gotta go. With <laughs> Turns out they're go. they're both about as illegal. <laughs> I'm gonna go with pooping in the hamper. Pooping in the hamper is pretty yeah. funny, especially because you didn't expect to go to jail after pooping in a hamper. That's true. When you burn somebody's house down, you're going to jail. Well, you burn the house down, you're worried about the safety of pets and your children and stuff like that. You just find somebody. Drop the deuce in your hampers. It's like, oh, oh, come on! And you had to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. How can I get back at her? And it's real funny because it's a hamper. I mean, we've all considered dropping an upper decker in somebody's house when they piss us off. But, right? But Najee... You guys are looking at me like, I'm I'm there. Well, maybe not you, Kyle. Yeah, it wouldn't have the same effect. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Kyle's last poop was in 1999. Well, solid one. <laughs> God. <laughs> where, where were we at? 
know, man. I lost I don't it. Know. Really. So I we're supposed to what we're supposed to be doing right now is analyzing Giacomo Casanova. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, I, I I think he's spectacularly interest, interesting. I think he's he's an interest. He's disgusting. He's, I think yeah. he's flawed. I I think he did some pretty heinous shit. Then again, so does everybody that we talk about on this show, except for Blackbeard. Yeah, we talked about that earlier. The only person that turned out to be like a pretty decent dude was Blackbeard. Yeah. <laughs> the th- one of the things that really struck me is, and it, because of the Grand Tour, and we discussed discussed this, is his networking. The guy knew Voltaire. Yeah. Mozart. Ben Franklin. He, he managed to get in in all these royal courts. Well, he, he takes full advantage of networks that are in place. The original 18th century social network of Europe, the Freemasons, he's mm-hmm. a member of that. Yeah, like he was a spy and in the actual Illuminati. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was a Freemason, so that was a yeah. given. Right. Yeah. And then so, wrote yeah. about hollow earth. He was yeah. a lizard person. There is, uh, I, yeah, we didn't even have time in this episode to go into the esoteric side of mm-hmm. Casanova's life. But I also think the attractiveness towards people wanting to hear about Casanova's story is the fact that he is a rebel. He is, I mean, he's everything we talk about on this show. He's a renegade. He is... Um, he, was, he was most assuredly a rogue. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely true. It, it, yeah, he just... Um, I do commend by his own rules. Yeah, I, I sure. commend for just how fiercely independent he was mm-hmm. at all times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think people there's something that people see in Casanova that they oftentimes will long for a little bit in themselves. The yeah, who wouldn't that, want to be taken down, Catherine the Great? Like, you kidding me? Yeah. But also, what I mean is also that idea of independence, that idea of being a free spirit, being able to be a traveler, being able to... And, and I mean, a lot. there are a lot of people out there who definitely wish they were better with the opposite sex. Correct. 40,000 miles by carriage. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of traveling. I mean, considering that's about 15 miles a day, maximum. He lived a lot longer than I ever thought he would have. That, oh yeah. That's yeah, I didn't true. realize that he died in his 70s. Yeah. Well, he didn't, he must not have gotten the syphilis. Well, or they well, treated you it. Because you could treat it at the you time. You could treat it at the time. Yeah, as long as you caught it, which you a lot of times it. they didn't catch it. The treatment was, was rudimentary, but they did it. And not everybody who was syphilitic ended up with full third stage going crazy, your face rotting like, away. Yeah, he would have been a little more dialed into what was happening to his body than most. Right. And, and another thing is, like, they always say that it's it's like tax evasion that got Capone. It was syphilis that got Capone. Like He died insane. Like His brain basically liquefied. But, again, it's, it, it's like Kyle, you just alluded to. He was probably one of those people. And I actually, I know people that are like this. They know that they are very sexually active with multiple partners. Mm-hmm. And they take great pains to make sure they're regularly tested. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Make sure that they're engaging in as safe a practice as you can practice in the 21st century. So yeah. I'm sure It does feel like he was thing. also the guy that was... I don't want to say that he was practicing safe sex because he was definitely looking out for number one. Yeah. Like, he wasn't making sure his partners were being tested, but he did take care of himself. But there is an element of him that is risk conscious. Yeah. Yeah. That is. Well, it's it's hard to pick up dates if your nose falls off your face. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and also, we do. People do write about how a lot of his friends wrote about how his, his personality changed when he got older. And I'm wondering if that is sort of not the second stage of syphilis, not the third, but like a like a two and a half stage. Hmm. Is he even syphilitic, or did he just become like Onyegin? 
Was it more of was it more of that? I think I think combined with the detrimental effects to the rest of his physical health, it was probably an effect of syphilis. It might have been. And, it, well, it, it might have been. I don't know that the basically self-imposed exile at Dukesoff really helped too much. Mm. I mean, it, it, there's there was a story yeah. that I read where he he actually went into town one time and he just got the ever living shit kicked out of him randomly. Because the townspeople didn't like him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was a crotchety son of a bitch by the end. Of I can understand why you wouldn't want a guy like Giacomo Casanova walking around your quiet burg. Yeah. Yeah, especially yeah, an sure. old, grumpy Casanova. Mm-hmm. And he might have pumped his numbers quite a bit, but he pissed off enough people for real that, I mean, there's there's definitely something there. Look, I mean, I'm sure... Louis was going to kill him. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm sure at one point all of us have lied about our number... But nah, it, it, it's a, a lot of people do. But it's like this dude is two a lot <laughs> before marriage. <laughs> Sinner. It's I mean Casanova for sure. I'm sure he inflated his numbers somewhat in his own autobiography. But dude got down. Oh yeah, for sure. Dude got down. You don't get an international reputation in the age before digital communications. Like when Casanova has when been synonymous with womanizing for hundreds wax. of years. Yeah, yeah, he had a reputation as a fuckboy then. Yeah, they the preceded only, him across borders. Like the only contemporary I can think of in in the last hundred years would be Errol Flynn, mm. where he was absolutely known for yeah. bedding everybody. Yeah, Bob Crane. Well, the word about Bob Crane didn't get out until after he died. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bob Crane you know, and Bob like Crane's talk- neighbor. Well, it's not like he was talking about it on the first two seasons of Hollywood Squares. Yeah. <laughs> and he was married to Helga. Was he really? Here, here, uh, I can't remember her name. Uh, I can't either. I didn't re- I didn't know that. I, I want to say Fisher was her last name, but I'm not quite positive on that. Yeah, he was married to her. That was his first his first wife. <laughs> And obviously the sex cult thing didn't happen until after her, but it's my lord. Shockingly enough, the sex, I mean, after that, it yeah. would be downhill from there, as far as I'm concerned. Shockingly enough, the sex cult came around uh, right about when the cocaine did. Oh, go figure. Well, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, go figure. Uh, Helga, her name was, excuse me here a moment. Oh, don't, don't do that. Yeah, she... Wasn't on as many episodes as people Don't do think. that. Uh, yeah, Cynthia Lynn. Cynthia Lynn. Yep. <clears throat> so I didn't realize they were married. Yeah. <laughs> See, I learned something today. So yeah. So that's. <laughs> and I hope story. you did too. So <laughs> that was our uh, photo negative of the uh, sex talk about Heaven's Gate with the story of Giacomo Casanova. Everybody, Yikes. thank you for listening. Um, if you want to find us out there on social media, Chris, you can go and hit us up <clears throat> on Instagram at trrpod. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at podcast trr. You go ahead and search Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades on Facebook. You can find us there as well. Uh, and if you have any suggestions, anything you'd like to drop for us, uh, any concerns, any stories you'd like to add, uh, any erotic fan fiction you want us to post on our site, please send it to trrpod at gmail.com. Also keep those letters about the Bob Crane sex cult coming. I'm enjoying them. Yeah, we can't get enough with, of them. with my furious masturbation, it's, it's nice. It's nice, to, it's nice to be loved and part of the crew. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is the twenties again. I guess it is time. For the the roaring twenties. Um, Kyle, you had something you wanted to mention to 
everybody. Yeah, perfect follow up to masturbation. Um, so uh, logi- I help run the logistics of a 500 person wine event uh, that happens each year. Uh, it supports an organization called Sisters Place, which uh, provides opportunities for families and individuals to overcome poverty, homelessness. Uh, through housing, wellness services, and personal professional uh, advancement. Uh, it's called Crush Grapes. This year it's going to be March 5th at Nova Place in the North Shore of Pittsburgh. Um, full details are at sistersplace.org, but we do obviously the wine aspect, but also craft beer, food, live music. Um, we're currently looking for sponsorships. Uh, we're looking for donations of food. I'm looking for volunteer labor. Uh, it's a really cool event. Uh, it's been happening for, I think, a little over a decade now. Um, goes to a really great cause, and it's a tremendous amount of fun. If you want super specific details, feel free to reach out to me directly. Uh, I, it's uh, kylegraper at gmail.com. Cool. It's awesome, yeah, man. You heard it here first, dude. I'm in. Whatever great you need from yeah. me, I'm in. Awesome. Great cause. Volunteer your time. Volunteer a little effort. Get out there. See Kyle in person, and let that vision of him inspire that erotic fan fiction that we mentioned earlier. <laughs> Uh, yes. So thanks everybody for listening. If you'd like to support what we do with a little bit of cash, as little as a dollar a month, you can go to www.patreon.com slash trrpod. We will try not to sleep with your daughters like Casanova. I make no such promise. Yeah, but Fair. We, we will try. I make no such promise. Chris, we will try. That maybe, promise maybe kicks in at the $100 no, Chris, a month level. Chris, try. That's all we ask. <laughs> do or do not, there is no try. Oh, God. So... Next week, we're going to... Now, wait. Let's try something different. Yeah. Uh, we're going to try something a little bit different here. We're going to do a little guessing game. And this is something that, that Mike is going to have no no previous kind of experience here. He's not going to know what's coming. We're going to have Rob throw out three different possible topics. And we'll see if Mike guesses the right one. Okay. So, whenever you're ready, Rob, you just throw out three. So, three possible topics we are going to discuss none other than Arnold Rothstein the famous man who fixed the 1919 Black Sox scandal we are going to be discussing Vladimir Putin or are we discussing famed pirate hunter Woods Rogers Woods Rogers aren't we Man, I can't believe he got that. He didn't even know what was coming. It's not like there was any kind of signal or anything. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna be talking about we're gonna be talking about Woods Rogers next that, time. That didn't make it easy I, to pick at all, did hey, it? Just don't take my shirt off, man. Don't take my shirt no off. Camisa. No camisa! No <laughs> camisa! So yeah, so we're gonna be we're gonna be going back to our roots a little bit. Age of sale, bringing some pirates into it, but somebody who's on the other side of the coin part of the time. Yeah, part of the time, I think it's fair. He walked in a couple different worlds. And, uh, 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 well, I mean, we are going to be reading another autobiography for that one, so... This one, yeah. I, this one I have a little more faith that he's being... I do, too. Like, ...a bit more truthful. Everything I know about Woods Rogers is, like, the man was incapable of being anything but stoic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, just at all times. Yeah. He was just a stoic, scarred man. Now, normally that's an outlook that I think tends to make you... What's the word I'm looking for? Oh, yeah. Giant pain in the ass. <laughs> yes. And very not much fun so. to be around. But, uh, yeah, we're going to be exploring that next time. So, no castration. 
No. Is there going to be castration? Because no we say that a lot. We promise that a lot. And there's always no, some kind of castration. No self-inflicted castration. That I know for sure. And nobody who should have maybe castrated themselves that we right. mentioned this week. I am weaseling Catherine, Catherine the Great into it, though. And I will have you all know that as much as we were talking about, talking about like a foppish-looking dude, that not one time did I make a fancy lad reference. And I think that's my... See, I was, I was That's under, my maturity and I'm growing as a see, person. I was under the impression that our habit of working Cabin Boy references into episodes had been just it's completely so, run over by the whole Catherine the Great Horse It's so stuff. impossibly seamless that you wouldn't even know. Like, after he got his mercury, his pipes were clean! <laughs> and there it is. All right, everybody. On behalf of myself, Rob North, uh, Chris Miller, Mike Lernett, Kyle Graper... Thank you for listening. This I want to note as well that this episode got so intense, the dog actually left the room. Yeah. <laughs> I think we even grossed him out. Yeah, I don't blame him. It was so, pretty gross. Yeah, when... Uh, he was relatively tame. It could have been so... Here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. <laughs> like, there are so many ways I can make this hold fast thing totally gross. Let's just... just, let's no, just I'm not, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. We'll see you next time, everybody. Thank you for listening. Hold fast. Insert dick joke here.